most voters on the center left and even part of the center right agrees with left wing policies. It's just that the social Democrats have stopped giving that story to them. What is the future of social democratic parties in Europe? Decade defining elections are coming up in Germany, France, and Hungary. Many strategists, academics, and party members are debating the best paths forward for social democratic politics. This episode dives into how social democratic parties can reverse their decline. To do so, we are analyzing strategies to build successful coalitions and the role of narratives in modern politics. Stay tuned for a debate on how social democrats can thrive in the 2020s. My name is Diego Rivas, and you are listening to Talking Progress, a podcast by Das Progressive Centrum. In this podcast, we will explore new ideas for social progress in Germany, Europe, and transatlantic spaces. Today, you are listening to our Progressive Governance series. We recorded this episode as part of the Progressive Governance Digital Summit, which took place from June 9th to June 11th, 2021. Our guests are political scientists Tim Bale and Andre Kral. Anya Skripek is moderating this session. Tim Bale is professor of politics at Queen Mary University of London, researching European political parties and their electorates. Andre Kral teaches political science and communication at the Free University of Amsterdam and focuses on political parties, elections, populism, extremism, and conspiracies. Anya Skripek is director for research and training at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. She is in charge of the Next Left Research Program and coordinates FEP's Young Academics Network. Keep on listening to hear them discuss research and policies that enable progressives to win elections and build majorities after this crisis. My name is Anja Skrzypek, and now we are starting this conversation in a very interesting moment in time because uh, Europe is slightly deconfining. Uh, we see quite a lot of movement when it comes to attitudes, but we've also seen already in the very recent uh, uh, past and a bit longer, we've seen quite a lot of elections um, that uh, show us that center-left is in trouble, but it's not the only one, right? Um, so uh, starting with the first question, where are we actually? That's a good question. And we all know, of course, that social democracy is in trouble. I would like to say, I don't think the left is in trouble. Okay, so if you look at a broader sort of opinion structure, so you look, for example, at political ideas, or you look at vote propensity, so vote intentions for parties, not necessarily what people vote for, but their intention or the ability to also vote for the left. You see actually that we did a study in 27 countries in Europe and only in four of them, we saw a general decline of the entire left. Now, what is going on on the left is that the share of social democratic voting and the, uh, the people that say they'll vote for social democracy is declining in some countries really rapidly, like France, the Netherlands. Um, but in general, people voting for a left-wing party in most countries is relatively stable. That is, if it declines, it's within the 3% uh, range. And we, it is not crazy because we know that once people are socialized in political ideas, 
they don't immediately lose it. On top of that, I think there's a sort of revival of appreciation of the state, especially a pandemic, I think offers a lot of opportunities to say, you know, it's good that we have a state and they could keep the economy going by supporting wages, by supporting uh, companies and supporting families throughout the pandemic when everything else is down. And, and so I think when we talk about the crisis of the left, we should think about it is a crisis, particularly of social democracy, just as I think the crisis on the right is also particularly a crisis of Christian democracy, uh, more than it is of conservatives and of liberals. And then I think that we should secondly think about, so what could be a revival strategy? And then I would pose, so can, they, can social democracy come back as a sort of broad party, you know, broad umbrella, big people's party, or will it be basically a challenger party to a more a stronger left that is green or radical? I mean, I, I would say to that, you've put your finger on a really, really important question there. And that is whether the age of, as it were, catch-all politics and catch-all parties, you know, broad church parties is over. Uh, if it is, I think that does pose particular problems for the social democrats, for the centre-left. Uh, because they grew up uh, at a time when that kind of politics was politics uh, in a way. And their whole identity, their whole raison d'etre in some ways, was being able to put together a large electoral coalition, which spanned all the way from, in some circumstances, actually quite a long way to the left, to um, quite a long way to to the right. So if, if we're saying that the Social Democrats are are being squeezed, that the left is fragmenting, uh, then that delivers them particular problems. I also think you're absolutely right to say that the left is particularly perhaps prone to kind of navel-gazing and worrying about itself. But if it looks across uh, to the mainstream right, as you say, the mainstream right is also in trouble, as um, particularly Christian Democrats, but but even some conservative parties actually aren't doing particularly well. The, the UK is a good example where they... They are. But but conservative parties, uh, market liberal parties and uh, Christian democratic parties are, are also suffering, um, and particularly those kind of broad church uh, catch all parties uh, that, along with social democracy, used to thrive, if you like, in, in the golden age. So I, I guess when we're you know, talking about some of the questions that we've been posed here, we have to be very careful which parties we're, we're talking about and addressing in some ways the, the kind of prescriptions or some ideas that we might have according to, to their particular niche. Uh, and just finishing up, you know, what I was going to say now is that, you know, the problem, as I've already said and you've already said, is that social democrats weren't a niche party. So in, in a world where perhaps it's all about niches, they are going to be in trouble. Right. So uh, essentially, uh, you know, this is a record time. Under five minutes, the first part of the question has been answered and no way uh, to see the next uh, decade as the return of conservatives. Um, well, that might be reassuring, but when we look at polls, it absolutely isn't. I mean, both of you said we are in deep trouble. Um, there is a question what's happening on the left, but there is also a question about all the other parties that are at large. I mean, if you look at the uh, polls in France uh, um, and you see who's leading the polls in the presidential contest. Uh, if you look at the other countries also in the Western, Central and Eastern Europe, I mean, there is much of clouds on the horizon. But before we get uh, all gloomy and, uh, you know, despairing about it, I want to stop a bit for the moment on the left. Uh, um, because uh, Andre has been saying, 
saying like social democrats are in trouble but essentially that's not true for the entire left um and team uh, you've also been pointing out here yeah, there is uh, we are in trouble but there are different avenues so how mm. to take on are we supposed to talk about uh, niche and alliances as uh, you team would have suggested or is any other way that we can uh, look at our movement's future? Tim, uh, would you like to pick up uh, on that one perhaps first? Yeah, I mean, going back to some extent to what you were saying and, and what we were saying before, I, I mean, I think in some ways, social democrats shouldn't completely give up on, on their kind of catch-all nature. Uh, I think it's almost unavoidable really for them because it's very difficult to imagine what their niche would be. <laughs> other than being a kind of broad brush, uh, broad church party. They, they no longer have such a, a lock on the votes of organised labour, although in, in some countries, you know, that is still uh, quite important. And, and being a union member, you know, does it often correlate with, with voting for the centre-left, by no means always. Um, but it, it's difficult to see exactly what sort of segment of the electorate uh, the left should, should appeal to. Uh, and in some ways, I think what I would counsel is, is perhaps that the, the, the centre left has become a little bit too obsessed, if you like, with segmenting the electorate, a kind of Lego approach, if you like, to building electoral coalitions, deciding, you know, there are sort of target groups of voters who they can offer you know, particular policies to and, and, and building up a coalition that way. I think one of the things that the centre left was always quite good at, and one of the things that many centre right politicians are still quite good at, is telling the, the electorate a kind of overarching uh, narrative or story uh, about their country. Uh, and I think in some ways the left has to, the centre-left in particular, has to hold on to the possibility of, of doing that because, as I say, the, the niches for the centre-left aren't so obvious as they are, for example, for uh, the Greens and for new left and, and indeed far left parties. For them, you know, there's a much more obvious appeal to, if you like, the kind of post-materialists in the electorate, uh, to, to those who are into identity politics, for example, those who are obviously into uh, to green politics. But it, it, it's more difficult, I think, for the, for the centre-left to, to identify a niche uh, in, in that way. I also think it's quite important, uh, and it comes back to something you said actually about gloom, is not to be too despairing about all this. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember parties on, on both sides of the centre-left and centre-right divide being written off, uh, you know, and it suggested that they can never win again, only for them to actually do quite well in, in a few years' time. So clearly, you know, the circumstances are quite difficult, but I, I don't think necessarily that there's a, a cause for despair. Uh, Andre might be a little bit more pessimistic than me, though. Well, I'm sure he is going to be. I mean, I'm just about to give him the floor and I see him both nodding and disagreeing, which, you know, only rises the appetite for this discussion. Um, but uh, I think, you know, thanks a lot for saying that, because I think, uh, you know, if you are um, working for the think tanks or in academia and you are interested in social democracy these days, I think that there have been two or three uh, major papers by the academics working on the movement who have essentially said social democracy is done. Uh, what we could have done in the history is done um, uh, expect that the project is finished uh, but uh, you know you say absolutely not the case so you know um, spirit lifting already happening in this afternoon but um, I'm very cautious about it because I'm just about to hand over the floor to Andre Krauer whom we both uh, uh, um, announced that he probably is going to spoil the party a bit and I wouldn't be surprised especially 
especially uh, taking into account the last elections in the Netherlands and the elections that you see in the perspective of the last two decades, where indeed there's a lot of mixing and steering uh, on the left uh, uh, in the country with D66 performing as well as they did. And wherever they are, um, definitely uh, not having the score that everybody would have hoped for. Now, Andre, I did it for you. I already uh, have uh, provided a spoiler. The floor is yours. Yeah, so I would like to start from the idea. So did voters leave the party or did the party leave the vote, leave its voters, right? That's always a good question for social democrats to ask themselves. Why why are they giving opportunities for other parties to keep to get their voters? So so I have been looking with colleagues, um, especially um, Nick Martin from the UVA here in the Netherlands, into where do these people go? So who is hosting previous um, voters of social democrats and then everybody thinks no not everybody many people think oh they've all moved had these working class people they've all moved uh, to the extreme right which is not the case if you look where if you look uh, since the 2010s in the 2010s and since as social democratic parties have lost a substantial number of their of their voters in, in most in, in most countries um, these defectors so these people that are now hosted by other uh, are other parties are have basically not landed on the extreme right. They have not moved to populist parties. Populist parties have a sort of 15, 70%, 90% sort of threshold. In, in most countries, they don't, go, uh, they don't go above it. And most of the previous uh, center-left voters, social democratic voters, they either landed to the Greens or radical left, or they moved to the center-right. Uh, in particular, for example, in France, hey, you can see that Macron was able to, uh, to attract a lot of people from uh, the Parti Socialiste, partly because he came from it. So it was maybe not a big step for many people. He took away, he took with him a lot of his, of the MPs of, of, of the Parti Socialist. So it wasn't a big step, but also in the Netherlands, it's not such a big step to either vote for had a green left or a, um, a, a center-right uh, progressive party like uh, D66. And those voters clearly, like me, like to iterate again, they're not lost for the left. They have left-wing ideas. They are in favor of redistribution. They are in favor of higher taxation for more public goods. They have a really left-wing uh, orientation. Unfortunately, there's very little evidence that these voters will quickly return because there is no incentive within social democracy to return. First of all, I agree with uh, Tim, and I've said this many times before to social democratic leaders who in the Netherlands, I would say hate is a good word by now, because I tell them, listen, you don't have a story. Why, why would I vote for you? And that overarching story, which I think is very simple because you know they took really good care of people and they can do it again. Uh, and they made sure that people had upward social mobility, that kids had a good education. And so it is actually a good story to tell. And most of people would actually agree with the story. Most voters on the center left and even part of the center right agrees with left-wing policies. It's just that the social Democrats have stopped giving that story to them. On top of that, something else happened because a lot of the voters left. What is left of the left is people with relatively higher education. By the way, most of these people don't have to vote for social democracy in terms for themselves. They can, they can really, really fend for themselves. They are basically social Democrats out of altruistic attitudes. They don't need it for themselves. They are well off. And so... What is left is a highly educated group of people that know better. Now, they now have the problem that to outsiders or previous uh, voters for them, 
They look completely elitist. And the right has very cleverly exploited the idea that those highly educated lefties, those in the American communists and socialists, they are horrible people because they don't know how normal people live. And so the, 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 the left, because of the faction of large part of its voters, is left with a very um, different political base than it was. And that base now that is left is used against it. Um, and instead of using it as a strength, it's highly educated people with enormous ideas and enormous potential. It has actually now become a weakness and a way to attack the center uh, left. And so on top of that, most of them are very progressive. So now they also become vulnerable because now they are for open borders, for more EU. And so the idea that there is a moderate social democrat, a centrist social democratic party, that's a broad, that's a, that's a broad catch-all party with, which tries to aggregate different interests of lower class, middle class, and even upper class intellectuals into a broader story, that's gone because within that small group now of higher educated people, they are making themselves into a niche party by trying to either sometimes copy the left. So they had, so in the Netherlands, when I talk about, can we not merge with the green left? Well, you know, why? Okay, so that doesn't solve the problem. Or like in other countries, they say, oh, let's adopt a nativist agenda to get back the, the, the so-called working class people from the populace, which by the way, is not the strategy to go because imagine how vulnerable you then become basically to the other left, because now the other left can then tell you, okay, so basically you're now a populist party, anti-immigrant. Uh, your, your whole core base will walk away because they're, like I just said, they're progressive and left-wing. And so the what you see, social democracy has basically walked into its a, a trap that it's self-constructed. It doesn't know how to get out. And it's become very, very vulnerable to attacks of being elitist, progressive, unattached party that doesn't know how normal people live. And, and so even if you had a good story, who's listening? Right. But isn't that precisely at the core of uh, what we are facing now? I think, uh, you know, when we look at social democracy, I think also in the way both of you uh, portray and exhibit what the problem is, uh, I think the narrative has already changed because 10 years ago, if we were at this conversation, I think the narrative would have been uh, we have fantastic program only that we were misunderstood. Um, if we were 10 years ago in this conversation, it would be, you know, austerity isn't great, but we can't afford uh, uh, to go with the welfare state that it is. And today, everybody's talking about progressive recovery, uh, you know, more welfare state, welfare policies. Um, and to that end, before it would be uh, very much sort of, uh, you know, catch or votes party. And today we are talking about the clear political choices. So um, I want to perhaps take you further in this conversation because you said we need a good story. Uh, the others would say we need concrete ideas. I mean, there's always this tension about, uh, you know, how concrete you can be when you are talking about a vision for a long term vision for a society. So uh, Andrew, starting back maybe to you, because you said, you know, uh, uh, we need to have uh, this narrative. We need to go out of the trap. So how do we do that? What do we propose? Well, certainly not very specific policies because most people are not interested in very specific policy explanations. And let me tell you that many of my left-wing friends really love to go into super policy detailed discussions about how to solve all ills of society. And most people indeed just want to basically understand the morality from which you work. And what I think the social Democrats have lost is trust. And you don't gain trust back by becoming technocratic. You gain trust back 
by showing that the morality by which you are uh, in politics that guides your politics, your, I would say your compass, your ideological, but also your moral compass needs to be visible. And, uh, and that is why people would vote for you. And that's also how people associate with you. People don't associate with you on the fact that you are maybe also in favor of the same level of taxation. That is not something that makes you warm or cold. You might agree with this, but it's not what makes your heart uh, tick. And so we need to uh, get back because that is what I remember of social democracy because I'm actually older than Tim Bale, I think. Um, uh, that belonging to social democratic party was something that was your nest. You belonged to it because of where you came from or because you liked what they stood for in terms of who they cared for. And you could hear that in every single utterance of the people of that party. I remember uh, moving to Amsterdam and um, basically uh, what people did here was building houses. And so, yeah, we destroy green and <laughs> we destroy it. So we're not green always because people need to live well and people need a house. And if people want to park a car in front of the door, that's what you build. You build houses with parking spaces. And so the, the left was actually uh, trying to say, okay, so these are the people we take care of. These are our people and we fight for them. And so the, the fight and the most important issues that you have to show related also to why you are in politics, that needs to be combined. And I find very few, very few politicians in my country, but also in, in other languages that I, I can speak, I find them very, very uh, difficult to, to have this warm feeling of belonging. And, and, and the sense of belonging is very important in politics. We underestimate how strong voting behavior is related to emotions, sense of belonging, and how little actually it is related to actual specific policies. It's related to ideological orientations and general directions of policy, but not specific policies. So every moment you spend talking about specific policies without talking about the broader moral underpinning of that policy, you are losing time. And so the, the social Democrats need to go back to what they did. They lifted up people that didn't have enough. There's a lot of people that don't have enough. There's a lot of people who are completely precarious economically, who cannot afford a house, who cannot afford basically normal life, and certainly not make sure that their children have a better life in the future. This is what you should care for. And everything you say should be about you being angry that that is the case, that the right wing has destroyed opportunities for normal people, and that by trying to install hatred of others, they try and say, vote for us because our policies are better. No, they're not, because your children don't have it better than they had 30 years ago. You don't have it better than you had 30 years ago. Or at least you might have more, but you don't feel that the future is as secure as it was. And so this is, I think, the way that the left should start talking uh, and stop talking about all kinds of specific policies that people hardly understand and might I add, the more specific you become, the less we all agree about it. And this is why I think the left is always divided. Because they become so specific, what props up is all kinds of stupid conflicts. Because then you disagree on a small thing. But if you talk about, like the right always does, very vague general moral ideas, people agree with them. And that, I think, is the weakness of the left. The left... Yeah. 
doesn't understand how people think anymore. I think, can I, can I just come back on that? I mean, I think there are a couple of things that I would uh, register a slight caveat to. I think it's, it's very important that the centre-left isn't too, what we would say in English, miserableist. In other words, I, I think one of the disadvantages that in some ways the centre-left has over the centre-right is that the centre-right does tend to be a little bit more uh, optimistic. Uh, I, I think if you allow yourself as a party always to be talking about what's wrong with the country, uh, that's to some extent inevitable in opposition. But, but if you do it in such a way as to, uh, I think, depress people, that, that doesn't really help. You've got to be seen as, as the party of optimism, as the party of the future, and as well as a, a party that actually loves its country. And I think one of the problems that, that, that some centre-left parties have anyway is, is this sort of perceived lack of of patriotism and uh, that doesn't have to be nationalistic but you know it it, it needs I think to be to be um, stressed. I think also in terms of what Andre said I think it's very important that centre-left parties don't always put themselves on the side of if you like the the, the losers or the oppressed uh, minority. Now that's important I agree those people do need help but of course, you need the votes of people who aren't in that necessarily precarious situation, people who are doing basically OK, uh, but who perhaps aren't uh, too confident about you know, the, their, their ability to weather storms or, or how they're going to feel uh, in the future. Just a, a couple of caveats uh, on that. I think in, in terms of policies, I think Andrew's absolutely right to say, you know, don't be too specific. But I, I think... Something that you said, Anya, actually is quite important, which is, you know, we are in a slightly different situation now where, to some extent, I think social democratic parties and indeed some, some parties on, on the centre-left, on the centre-right, feel that perhaps, you know, we, we overshot uh, when it came to accepting market solutions for everything uh, in the past and that we, we now need to actually to accept more of a role for government and more of a role for the state. So that might mean that there is a little bit more room for manoeuvre on the centre-left, a bit more room to present, you know, the, the kind of more radical policies that perhaps Andre is, is talking about a little bit more confidently than, than was the case. But that said, I think the centre-left has to be very careful not to get into simply saying that it will spend even more than centre-right governments are, are prepared to spend. It's got to show uh, that it's going to spend smarter. And that is about actually giving people a, a sense of where it thinks the economy has to be in a few years' time, uh, which sectors uh, your, your country has a comparative advantage in. Uh, and it's all about actually persuading people that you can get them to that future more rapidly and, and more securely. Uh, and, and that, in some ways, is the story that has to be told. I, I agree that we shouldn't go into too much policy detail. But having said that, I, I think actually this resonates with what Andre said. You have to pick uh, a few signature policies that demonstrate what he called your compass or, or what I'd call your, your values. I think that's very important. And I'd also add that I think here leadership is really, really important. I think the centre-right, of course, uh, has always venerated leadership more than the centre-left or the left, which tends to uh, be quite suspicious about leaders. Uh, but I think, you know, the evidence suggests, well, I don't completely buy this idea of the sort of presidentialization of, of our politics, that, that leaders are a very important heuristic for voters. Uh, I think that the centre-left, as the centre-right, to be honest, has done more recently, 
has to take a few more risks uh, with the leaders it, uh, elect. It, it has to, uh, I, I agree, avoid you know, technocrats. It has to, uh, although it might not like uh, doing this, to, to put a premium on charisma, to put a premium on authenticity in a way that the, the right does, because that seems to be quite an effective way of, of luring in voters. And I'll, I'll finish you know, this little section by saying, I think Andrew's absolutely right about voters needing to actually see themselves reflected in the personalities of the party, in the party's MPs, in its representatives, etc. One of the problems for the for the centre-left, I think, is that it, it has lost, quote-unquote, normal people, um, people who don't necessarily have, you know, high qualifications, diplomas, etc., etc. It needs to find a way of getting some of those people back into the party, people who look and sound like the kind of people it wants to vote for it. <clears throat> now, it used to have the unions as a kind of transmission belt for that. And, and in some countries, of course, they are still there. Uh, but I think that kind of representative politics is incredibly important and very, very important when it comes to uh, the leader. Now, I'm not saying the leader you know, mustn't have a degree from a university, I'm just saying uh, when it comes to the leader in particular, you know, you have to have someone who's prepared to, to tell it like it is, to, to make a few mistakes, if you like, but be someone who people can relate to. Yeah, that's indeed a certainly important uh, point, because when we talk about state of democracy and, you know, we started with also describing the uh, electoral landscape and the political landscape in Europe. Of course, there's a question of how you put those two together, representative and participatory democracy, how you attract people to come closer. How do you balance back between the uh, leadership and empowerment of the members? I remember, Tim, um, a couple of years ago, you were very strongly advocating that we should not give up on the partisan uh, based parties, where I think quite a lot and Ander has been also writing about it saying okay this is a different stage uh, members are not having so much of a say and hence the way of translating politics is very much different and hence also it comes down to the question of leadership because mm -hmm. you need to have members you need to have internal participatory processes in order for the leaders to emerge to provide a generational change and we see that, uh, you know, everybody is looking now at New Zealand uh, with a lot of hope at Jacinda Ardern. Um, I think a lot of positive things have been uh, said about uh, Sana Marin, Pedro Sanchez and many others. Um, mm. But indeed, there is still something that social democrats are being looked at as saying, well, leadership is perhaps not your forte. Mm. But if not yet leadership, I see you want to add some things. Go ahead. Well, well, what's very interesting, of course, about Jacinda Ardern, and, and I say this as someone who's a, a New Zealand citizen as well as a UK citizen, is that she comes from a Labour Party that will not allow the members to have a say on who leads it. The, it is only the MPs who choose the leader in New Zealand. I personally think that that is the best system, but how you get the, the kind of democratic genie back into the bottle <laughs> once, once you've allowed members to make the decision on, on leaders, uh, I do not know. It's probably impossible. Well, I think that it's a fantastic cliffhanger. <laughs> Look, we all agree that those are very specific circumstances. We've already established, you know, where people are, uh, having been uh, many of them uh, kept in the confinement, big diversification about uh, groups uh, of uh, different employees and workers when it comes to ability to telework, when it comes to costs of the pandemic, uh, when it comes to how the life has changed and so on. Um, and at the same time, when we look election after election, even in the in cases of the country where there have been the protest movements, I'm referring, for example, to Bulgaria, um, still the social context of the protest movements demanding for a new social contract 
did not translate on the progressives being the one to be able to embed themselves of, uh, in this context. So we've already, uh, you know, uh, touched upon the issue that, right, we need a story. We need to go uh, beyond determinism that uh, sort of makes us very depressed and instead come back to what social democracy has always been about, saying uh, the contemporary times are terrible. Um, the future is uncertain, but we can make a transformation and we know on behalf of whom we are making this transformation indeed. Um, so when we are looking at the uh, recovery now, what would be, you know, it, the next months will be decisive. We have big elections, Germany. We're looking at elections in France now uh, and in the, in the period of the upcoming months. We are looking at uh, uh, elections uh, elsewhere, uh, including uh, Slovenia, the country that has a presidency. Um, Hungary is having a vote next uh, Czech year. Republic as so, well. So exactly, Czech Republic is just now in in autumn. So uh, you know what that is that we more instantly from this discussion um, could propose that social democrats uh, should do in order to become better in embedding themselves in the current context and uh, seeking you know progressive recovery, uh, winning the primacy of politics, if you want. Andre, you interrupted me, so you go first. I mean, uh, just as a punishment, a small yeah. one here. I would say. Uh, have a little bit more faith in where you started from, which is a moderate position on both the left-right economic dimension as also on, say, a more cultural dimension. So I believe that what social democracy is, is moderation, but with a very, very red heart. And so, indeed, that we are patriots. We love our country. And you can love your country and still be in favor of the EU. And patriotism, the love of your own country, is not nationalism, the hatred of others. And that is why I think the right is in deep, deep trouble more than we think, because the right has embraced nationalism in many ways. And look what happened to the, uh, the Republicans in the United States. They're being grabbed by populism. They're very susceptible to populism. And I think having a moderate stance on the cultural dimension makes sure that you're not totally sucked into this kind of populist uh, orbit uh, from which you cannot uh, escape anymore. We need to be critical of Europe. We're not, I don't know how we ended up in a place that we are the defenders of Europe. We don't like Europe that much because it's a market thing. And we like market to generate wealth, but it also undermines um, the ability for people to make a normal life. And we need national states and also national welfare states to make sure that people have a good living and to raise uh, taxes and Internationally, certainly at the European level, we still can't raise taxes. So we need we need to collaborate, but we need, don't need to cheer on international organizations that promote free market. And I think the left has lost it a little bit on both the economic and the cultural dimension. Like an insecure child who doesn't know which hand to hold of which parent that are being divorced. And they're sort of uh, oscillating between the two. And, you know, the child should be on its own. We, we know what we stand for. We don't need to hold anyone's hand and we don't need to copy anyone. The moderation in itself is a way to move forward. Yes, you need a market sector to, to develop a healthy economy, to make uh, people that, you know, put a little bit more effort to re reward them. But we also need a state uh, to make sure that too high inequality, which generates a lot of, a lot of problems in society, and a, and a lot of negative attitudes towards each other, we need to also be able to curb that. Uh, and on the cultural dimension, yes, we, we do like international collaboration because you need to solve international problems like, for example, climate change 
and the way that we cannot tax large companies that basically have now moved across the globe. And so we need to work with the uh, G7, EU or others to make sure that they start paying uh, taxes. But that doesn't mean that we can't be patriots and we cannot love our own country and our own welfare state and we'll protect it until the bitter end or make sure that that bitter end never comes, vote for us. Yeah, because I think national welfare states is what basically is the, the raison d'etre of social Democrats and Christian Democrats at one point in time. And so defending that welfare state, building it again and making sure that younger generations believe that we can do that, that social Democrats can protect them against the ills of the market is very, very crucial. And many young people you see have seen how bad the market is because they live in an urban area where housing markets are now generating a sort of killing field for most people that cannot afford to live in a, a, a relatively moderate place anymore without paying enormous amounts of rent or idiotic uh, mortgages. Going to university or higher education or even going to lower education has become so expensive in many countries. I think it was like nine times as expensive in two decades in the UK or something. Crazy amounts of money people are paying just to get an education. Are you crazy? We as social Democrats should make sure that people can get an education based on their ability, not on their ability to pay for it. And it is such simple policies, basically, such simple guiding principles that I don't understand how you even can stray from them and then think that a green agenda or a totally, I don't know, pro-European agenda would attract your voters. No, it wouldn't, because if we stray too far to the left, we will lose all these centrist voters. You know how many voters from the center right still have a high vote propensity for social democratic parties? Many, many. In most countries, you need those center right voters to move to you as social democrats in order to win elections or to become relevant. And the biggest problem of social democrats is that when people look at them, they've become so small that they don't see a tactical reason anymore to vote for them. So even if you have the good ideas, even if you get the moral compass back, even if you have the story again, even if people trust you again, will they then say, okay, can they actually become big enough to do the stuff that they promise? And so I am now worried at this stage, first of all, not to be completely marginalized and become completely irrelevant. And then from that, you need to build back better, I think Biden would say, but I would say bigger. We need a bigger tent we need a big tent in the middle of the political spectrum. We don't need those tentacles to be all the way out in the extreme uh, left, nor at the extreme progressive pro-European side. Centrism, moderation, clever, moderate, understandable policies that will not destroy but build, that I think is the future of social democracy as it was the past of social democracy. And I don't know why, I don't know why, we are contemplating on merging with radicals. I really do not think the solution is that when people walk away from you to become totally something else, it is better to think again, tell me again what I was. Let me think again what made me strong and what made me useful in this world. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm very tempted to go on the European debate, but that's not the subject of this panel. So instead, I will uh, refer back to you with the question about, you know, the discussion post-COVID recovery and state. I think 
you know, when it comes to, to you know, post-recovery and the welfare state, I think that is a difficult one because we, we are talking about so many types of different welfare state in Europe. And, and I think it's really, really difficult, we know, to shift between, you know, particular wor- worlds of, of welfare. So, so I, I think while Andre is right that you need a big offer, I mean, depending on, on which country we're talking about, you, you do have to go with the grain of, of whatever welfare state that you, you already have, which is a, a little dull. I know, I mean, I come from the UK I would love the UK to you know have a Danish style flex security welfare state but that, that would take a sort of three or four term Labour government to get there uh, even though it could offer perhaps some moves towards that but that's not going to happen in, in my lifetime the same for universal basic income I mean I think it's a great idea but in some way it offends against you know what I would see as a kind of hardwired suspicion among voters uh, of giving you know people something for nothing so I think we need to be very very careful about that I'll just finish because I know we're coming up to the the deadline and and, and I know Andre might want to finish as well you, you asked us you know right at the beginning you know what what should the main strategy be um for for the center left I mean you know I, I just repeat in some ways what I've said to, to to underline it I think progressives need to avoid defeatism um but remain you know reasonably realistic about their prospects I do think it needs to avoid uh, miserableism. Uh, it, it needs to, you know, learn to present an optimistic face. It also needs to face the fact that you can't build, I think, a, a winning electoral coalition out of, and if you're continually associated with the oppressed, the upset, uh, and the marginalised, um, because you need to win votes from people who are doing okay, who love their country, who want to know where the money's coming from, and, and are going to run a mile from anything that's too uh, ideological if you like. So I'd recommend focusing on what unites rather than divides the country uh, and taking a few more risks uh, when you choose your leaders. I'm not saying competence doesn't matter, but for good or real, it's, it's not everything. I'd also, as I say, rethink the centre-left's sort of Lego approach to building uh, electoral coalitions rather than chopping the electorate up into little bits and then piecing it back together again. I think you need to come up with a story that makes sense to most people. I do appreciate, you know, coming back to the the kind of theme at the beginning, that the big tent politics is more difficult than it used to be. But if you assume it's impossible, then you're going to be left permanently outside the tent that the centre-right and the populist radical right um, seem to be more capable of building at the moment. And then finally, I'd say, as somebody writes about the centre-right, try and learn from the centre-right. If they're beating you, they must be doing something right, okay? So try and understand what that is and within limits, borrow from it. That is uh, really a grand finale. But before I let you go off the hook and we are really up to the down of the last minute, one uh, more uh, question, which is about young people. And I think in a nutshell, it's not only about um, the uh, um, young people's participation, uh, but also about how to show that uh, uh, social democrats are the modernizing force, uh, how they are, and you know, we've covered that a bit, that they are the ones to be entrusted with the future. So, you know, uh, uh, if we were to set up uh, the, uh, uh, the benchmark of challenge at uh, one thing that you think will attract more young people and make us uh, rejuvenile in our approach and in the way we stand, because indeed, you know, you, you portrayed us as uh, the party that uh, has a specific uh, educational and uh, uh, demographic dimension inside and on mind. So what should we do to make young people come back to social democracy? Uh, we've seen different attempts, but what would it make it now? What do you think? Well, I'd come back if we 
thinking in terms of policies to some of the things that Andre said, actually. I think um, certainly in the UK, it's not necessarily as true in other countries, but it is um, you know, quite an issue. I think housing is in- incredibly important. I also think, you know, giving some people the sense that, you know, they, they can move between jobs, but have security within that, that kind of flexibility is really, really important. I think, you know, precarity uh, is, is something that, that people really worry about. They worry about their future uh, in that respect, and they worry about their future in terms of housing. So those are the things I'd major on. And Andre? Yeah, you, I always say you cannot live in a racist right-wing Uh, xenophobic rhetoric, but you can live in a house that's being built by the center-left and the center-right. And we should keep on doing that. We should build schools, good schools. We should fund them, especially mid and lower education, very underfunded. We always seem to talk about higher education and love universities, but that's good, but that's not the only thing. Um, And I think those who think housing and education are very important for young people. And on top of that, I saw the comments also that people think apparently that green politics need to be left-wing. Green politics do not need to be left-wing. Green politics doesn't need a left turn. Green politics need rethinking of, for example, what we tax. It doesn't mean higher or lower taxes. It means what do we tax and what do we spend it on? So it doesn't necessarily need to be a left or a right-wing turn, uh, but you need to cleverly think, why do we tax so much labor and so little pollution? And um, in most countries, actually, green left parties here in the Netherlands, for example, we have Kees Vendrik, very clever guy, who made up basically an entire plan that we can work with as well as social democrats, I think, steal from the center right, but also steal from, from the left if they've got good ideas, had to really green the taxation system, to really green the way that we do all our business, but also green the economy. There's a lot of technology. Uh, I'm thinking I'm a nationalist uh, uh, in, in some sense, but more a patriot, in, for example, in windmills. Why is the Netherlands, a country that always windmills, why is it not leading a market in windmills? And so I, I, Tim wanted an optimistic story. That would be my optimistic story. Hey, we're going to build the windmills of the 21st century. That's what we're going to do. And that is basically creating jobs, but also having an optimistic story, but also being green. And so I think the idea that green is of the left or the ultra-left or that housing or property is of the right is a wrong way of thinking. If you are center left, if you're a moderate, you can invent a policy on everything that is from that position. That is a moderate, clever, doable uh, position and policy that will actually work and actually will make people's lives better. And I think that's a very optimistic story because we are and always have made people's lives better. We have lifted people up from horrible housing, from horrible working conditions, from horrible health conditions, into very healthy, long-living citizens. In most countries, by the way, super happy. And what happens? They think the center-right did that. (laughs) No, they didn't. And certainly not the extreme right. And I think people need to tell them that. And the center-left needs to tell them that. And so housing, education, greening the economy, and making sure that people have a healthy, healthy life healthy food, we should tax sugar, for example, we should tax fat instead of subsidizing it, including subsidizing petrol and gas. And so it's very simple steps that you can take, uh, I think, with moderate policies that are not extreme left or green and so belong to the environmental parties. All policies belong to social democrats 
if they make it into a social democratic policy. Fantastic. And uh, that was our grand finale. I think that it has been an amazing conversation. We are personally with the two professors, uh, Professor Andre Krau and Professor Tim Bale. I found out new things about their approach, though I have been a fan reading their uh, books and their work and having been in a couple of discussions before. I think, you know, Andre calling for moderate position has been a striking thing, while a uh, team also speaking about how we connect uh, democracy and empowerment in the representative and electoral sense. Very enjoyable to hear. We definitely said it's not going to be the decade uh, for uh, the uh, conservative uh, parties because they are in trouble. But we've also stipulated that it's not by default that it will turn to certain centre-left. I think uh, it is very clear that we are looking at a very pluralist picture with a lot of factors in. But I do think that where we converge is we have to drop the pessimism. We have to drop the uh, disempowering determinism that, you know, we are sentenced for the end of our project. Um, I think we absolutely have to start avoiding our own traps. But if there were five ingredients to make us successful again, would be to get the big story, to get a big picture, to get ethics, moral dimension right, to get strong leadership that is embodying um, the idea of the people searching for more security and more promise, uh, get to be optimistic and definitely do not shy away from the issues that embody social justice, opportunities and equality as a promise that absolutely can be fulfilled in the new current century. That was the second episode of our Progressive Governance series. In our next episode, Robert Habeck and Margarita Vestager will debate Europe's digital future. If you want to learn more about the Progressive Governance Summit or rewatch our debates, go to Progressive dash governance dot eu slash rewatch or check out the link in our show notes this podcast was produced by annika hoffman with music by armin Mualem. my name is diego rivas thanks for listening catch you at the next episode of talking progress the podcast that explores progressive ideas for germany europe and transatlantic spaces